Welcome, listeners. Here's another episode of Unverified Accounts for you. I'm your host, as usual, Chris, here with Liza and Philip. What's up, guys? Good morning. Hey, hey. Good morning. How you I think we're all doing our morning traditions. Liza, you got your <laughs> spicy takoki? Every Sunday morning, this is like my new my new breakfast. We just, I guess, eat like the spiciest Korean food and it wakes me up, you know? Well, yeah, that's better than coffee, which I'm drinking now. How, how's your morning, Philip? I had spicy Korean food yesterday night, so my morning's a little bit different. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, well, what'd you have? Uh, I, I made, um, well, we, we make this uh, sundubu like paste mm-hmm. and we kind of just like freeze it and we can pop it out and make instant sundubu. So we had sundubu oh, wow. yesterday. Yeah. Well, you make your it's own. Really That's good. very impressive. Mm-hmm. I've only tried making sundubu once and it failed. Uh, so I, I'm due for a retry because that was several years ago. For some reason, I just like, couldn't get it right. Even I'll though I'm my I recipe, can... yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, that's. Oh, what? What? Uh, you're stunting on me. <laughs> <laughs> Vietnamese guy sending a Korean guy. It's, it's, a, it's, it's from a it's from a popular Korean um, YouTuber called Friendly Neighbor or something like that. Oh, cool. Uh, okay. Or Future Neighbor. Yeah, it's good. Okay. So it's a Korean couple that does recipes and stuff. Anyway, I'm, ver- I'm very loyal to Mangchi. Oh yeah, Ajuma, me too. Me too. But, uh, but I, I will. More, I will accept this. This is a more convenient. One. She has a much more hardcore uh, sundubu. Recipe, I, I think so 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 minari came out on vod uh a couple of days ago i think and you know liza you and i have watched this movie like a couple of months ago we watched and, it before christmas right yeah yeah and then uh philip you watched it a bit more recently even though i think it was a few weeks ago so we've been yeah. waiting to do this episode just waiting for the right time so i think now is the right time and we'll talk about the movie i mean we will talk about the movie but also the broader discussion we want to have is as as much as we enjoyed this movie is like are, is Asian American culture stuck in this, or not stuck, but more like only allowed to be a certain type of movie? And and we'll talk more about that. But as usual, we will do a rundown of the news that made us laugh or maybe even cry with not 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 like despair, but more like you know, cry, like, like joy cry. <laughs> yeah, joy cry, or just you know like you know shake my head cry kind of thing. Uh, so uh, starting first, this this unexpected thing that happened a couple of days ago, this Ginny and Georgia clip that that went totally. Bonanza. Was that viral viral or is that just like in our circles? It like, was did, like did, viral viral. Did it get picked up by that blogs thing, and stuff? Yeah, like oh, okay. I saw like The Guardian, uh, even oh, man, you really? know, like UK papers writing about this. Wow. Okay. Um, you know, like I think like Teen Vogue uh, picked it up as well. So what this, um, you know what, uh, why don't I just drop a clip in here just so people who don't know uh, can see, uh, <laughs> listen to it. You don't get it. You are closer to white than I'll ever be. Together, we make a whole white person. Your favorite food is cheeseburgers, and I know more Mandarin than you do. You're barely even Asian. Sorry, I'm not Chinese enough for you. But I've never seen you pound back jerk chicken. Last time I checked, Brody twerks better than you. And I liked your poem. But your bars could use a little more work, homie. So really, how black are you then? Excuse me? What? Literally, what? Because if we're going to play that game, let's do it. Oppression Olympics. Let's go. Okay, so I mean, we've seen this m- many times. And I mean, you, you can see why people were so heavily critical of this. Uh, it's apparently the number one thing on Netflix right now. I have TV never even movie. heard of yeah, this yeah, show until, until you tagged me to watch this. Yeah, so now I'm, I'm wondering, did it go number one because... Uh, before or after this? <laughs> like, did people start watching it be- after this? In which case, it's kind of a brilliant... Like guerrilla marketing, I suppose. Even though uh, you know the, the actors and writers probably don't feel good getting clowned on, but still, hey, if mm-hmm. it reached number one. Um, but anyway, what were you guys' thoughts when you first? Saw first of it? all, like I was wondering, is the entire show Ginny and Georgia like this clip? I'm, I'm, I understand they're like cherry picking like an extreme, you know, scene. 
But like, is the rest of the show roughly in this ballpark or is it about something else? I don't know. And I don't really care to find out. I mean, even my hate watching has its limits. um, But I wouldn't be surprised because it just I I saw the trailer and and in it, the mom, uh, because the conceit of the show is that it's a a very young mom and her daughter and and they're like going around uh, committing like petty crimes together or something the mom says something like we're just like the gilmore girls except with bigger boobs and it has this very (laughs) um like like self-consciousness that is a a very uh dark bodings because i i think it's it's a it's a show that's too aware of itself i mean if you if you told me that was what the show was about i would actually be kind of interested but (laughs) but like this clip sounds nothing like that right this clip sounds Mm -hmm. like it's got zero self-awareness around yeah. the current conversations and and like what writing what good writing is what bad writing is and so on because i think the main thing that people were saying they're saying two things that i saw right one was that this is terrible writing and as a writer i feel like i you know kind of like um if i ever wrote anything terrible this is completely washed me of that sin mm-hmm. um and then the second thing that i saw was that people were saying you know this is what happens when you have this is an example of what happens when you have a room of entirely white writers writing for poc right uh-huh. Um, and then there is debate around that. I think like uh, T from Champagne Sharks pointed out that there's actually a black woman who wrote that episode and people were kind of cherry picking writers from the like IMDb or something to point out there was just like two white women. But I think yeah. it was actually he said there's actually um, that episode in particular was written by a black woman or something to that extent. And well, so, actually, there, mm-hmm. were, there were three black people involved. It was that oh, black really? woman, a black man and the actress herself uh, said that she was uh, like involved in, in writing it. Okay. And if you go on Twitter, um, if you if you go back a few months, they were proud, so proud of this episode. It's like episode eight of the show. And they were saying, uh, you know, I grew up in like a biracial household, and this is the first time I was able to, you know, voice my life on on screen and everything. So they they took mm-hmm. full credit for it. But then when things go wrong, they blame uh, whites. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like with Mulan. Remember when Asian Americans, when they realized Mulan kind of sucked, they they all blamed it on white people, even though. <laughs> Uh, you know, white people create the original Mulan, which is which is like revered in our community. <laughs> so it's like, oh, you mean I, the new Mulan, not the not the original. Yeah, yeah the new okay, Mulan. Okay, yeah, okay. And they're like, if only yeah. an Asian American directed it. I'm like, no. Nah. I mean, this whole movie had so many flaws that I don't think. Yeah, it like, did. likewise for uh, what was it? Um, uh, who's that fucking Marvel hero with uh, the white guy? Oh, Iron Fist. Iron Fist, right? People were like, oh, if it was only an Asian American hero instead, it would be way better. No, like he's just some like crappy, like C-list Marvel hero. <laughs> like the whole story was terrible anyway. Like just don't don't touch it with a 10-foot pole, right? Yeah. Yeah. Liza, what were your thoughts when I when I tagged you in that? I, I so I had never heard of Ginny and Georgia, so I wasn't sure if this was even a real show. <laughs> and then I went down to the replies and I was like, my God, it's a real show. And it just kind of like, you know, I'm very anti- TV series, so mm-hmm. it was very affirming for me to stay away from television. Yeah, <laughs> not that bad. Right, like I can't show up in movies too, right? Mm-hmm. See, the problem with the dialogue, it's not even that it's cringe because teenagers are cringe, generally, like period. And mm-hmm. if you can accurately portray that, it can be incredibly well done. Like I'm thinking of, but that's I not think, what they were doing exactly. And, and I think uh, you know, you watch Freaks and Geeks, it's like that, like it's. Teenagers mm-hmm. being cringe 100 percent of the time, mm-hmm. pretty much, and and the show is beloved, rightfully I, so. I take it back. I love Freaks and Geeks. Oh yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> um, it's you know it's not the cringe itself that's what's pissing people off. I think it's it's the cringe that's being portrayed as 
some kind of like revelatory moment which will make <laughs> you sympathize with these characters because if they played it for say satire it, these are like two earnest teens trying to replicate uh advanced racial dialogue that they imagine adults having and this is what happens i think people would find kind of find it endearing like oh this is i can relate you know i was once like that but this is just shown as two hyper woke intelligent precocious teenagers yeah um yeah. and that's what's pissing people to, off to like the, to the point of pandering to the current like cultural climate right like they're they're these characters almost like the stuff they're saying is always made up to make it fit into like the twitter sphere you know yeah no, the pandering is a good point because i think what they're trying to show is this type of dialogue is actually high level dialogue i think yeah, that's what yeah. they're saying so all the all the like twitter twittery speaking people uh, it's meant to flatter them. Like all, all your little catchphrases, all your little buzzwords. That is actually mm-hmm. what we should all be aspiring for. And these teenagers, by God, look at them. They're only like six, fifteen, and they're talking like this. They're well underway to becoming our our nation's uh, enlightened leaders and you know things like that. And the people are like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. The other thing I'll say about it too is that when I when I first saw the takes that were like, oh, like you know, white people wrote this or something. My first thought was like, I, I'm 100% could imagine an Asian American writing this. Too, right? <laughs> exactly. like, Same. Yeah. That's what I. That's even what I said. I was like, I was like, I get it's. This is exactly the kind of the kind of thing that like some, I don't know, some Asian diversity consultant or screenwriter would write. That's how little I think about Asian American screenwriters and filmmakers. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. You know, it, it all provided us with a good laugh. Uh, and <laughs> But like, so when are we going to stop blaming white people constantly for this? Like we've seen that some of the worst writing about Asian people comes from like non-whites. Yeah. And also it's very disempowering because if, if you even say, hey, uh, even stuff written by black people uh, is ultimately blame worthy on white people because they run everything. Well, that also means everything good made by minorities is probably funded ultimately greenlit by white people do they get all the credit too he's like if we can't do any bad then we can't do any good either it goes both ways Mm -hmm. and and these uh you know these minorities and and women and all all these are kind of like outsiders you can't you can't have these like ridiculous double standards or everything good is is due to you and everything bad is is due to other other people it's absolutely childish and uh, no accountability whatsoever so it's never gonna improve until you start until we all start blaming who's really responsible and it's it's us (laughs) yeah it's accountability you gotta you gotta you gotta grow up and and you know some of the the best on-screen representation i've seen all year of an an asian actor an asian person is in first cow which was Mm -hmm. actually written and directed by a white woman Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah um yeah we we still gotta watch that movie i still i still gotta yeah it's on showtime okay okay all right uh moving on um reply all controversy and bon appetit i don't listen to reply all i know it's a very popular podcast i Mm -hmm. certainly don't give a damn about bon appetit but the backstory here is remember the whole like bon appetit um fallout uh i mean as ridiculous ridiculous (laughs) as it sounds remember when like george floyd got murdered and then um as a result the the editor of bon appetit got fired that that seemed that really seems to be the only real consequence of those protests people at uh, media publications uh, rising up. Um, no, in, in no other industry, it seems to have be taking place. We can talk about uh, why a little bit later. But anyway, uh, th- there was a there was a controversy within a controversy, and and the whole uh, podcast has been. There was a podcast series uh, on Reply All about the Bon Appetit thing. Mm-hmm. I think there was some complaints about like a toxic war culture, and that they'd only focused on 
uh, like white uh, workers at Bon Appetit. I'm not sure. So then the, the, the series about getting canceled for racism got canceled for racism. Um, yeah. <laughs> we, need, we need a third level of inception. I'm sure it'll happen at some point. Yeah. yeah. And, and the reason I bring this up is not because I care about either of those things, but I do want to ask, like, why are these racial reckonings only happening mainly, or at least mainly happening in newspapers, podcasts, um, you know, things like that, like just basically the media sphere. It happens in academia too, but I think that it happens in academia um, like when tenure is threatened or like when it's tied to media, like if like a professor's book gets canceled or like some high profile interview on TV gets canceled. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's those little spaces purport to care about diversity and like being anti-racist and so on. And so they are, they are somewhat introspective. And so when something like this, blows up it really blows up right otherwise you come off as a hypocrite right yeah and so and also i think this to some extent i think um like this 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 article you shared about the controversy was from the, the hollywood reporter you know another media company i think media companies like to talk about media companies right True, yeah. like it's like almost gossip that they can publish um so there's that aspect too right they blow they blow it up right they have the audience mm-hmm. yeah uh, and i think that goes to a point that i i want to make i think um Ultimately, a lot of the whole like socially progressive, at least all of the people, even from the Twitter person with like five followers to the to like the leaders of of like say Black Lives Matter or some of the biggest movements, mm-hmm. almost everyone's goal seems to be some to be some kind of content creator, mm-hmm. which is why yeah, or like content curator. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and, and I think that's why that all these the, the biggest uh, shakeup from these you know murders of innocent black people is not you know more for example you would think you would see shakeups in the legal industry or like uh something like that but it's not it's all in the like entertainment or and like media wall street I, would yeah, be yeah, so yeah. easy yeah because you know, i think that's all t- that's where everyone's end goal is and and for for no further proof just look at the obamas they're apparently making yet another movie about the obamas it's like some <laughs> uh, tv show from like the first ladies perspective throughout the the, the decades and is it going to be like scripted or is it like yeah, I they script. They script. I think. Uh, I think there's a famous person playing Michelle. I'm not sure if it's oh, Viola Davis oh or something, but it's someone like her. So it's like, like a, it's like a highbrow, like lifetime documentary. Maybe, maybe it's okay. like a documentary that also blends in dramatization or something. Mm-hmm. But how many movies about the Obamas have we had already? Like three, four. It's like a franchise. It's like a cine- Obama cinematic universe. It's <laughs> and none of them have been good, so it can't really be. Oh, it's raking in the money. I think it is their ideology, their supreme dream. Is to be like content creators. Um, did you see that Obama like podcast with Bruce Springsteen? Apparently, oh my yeah, God, yeah, like, I saw that. Was, yeah, you know that this has like a huge built-in audience, right? You know, there's going to be people. Oh, who- it's going to do bonkers. Like Obama's book was like I think the runaway bestseller last year. Yeah. Did any of us read that book? I can't I remember. Wanna, I don't want to read nope. that. Man, you know, I used to love Obama so much, but oh, it's like every second, it's a new depth of disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, so I think this is a real issue because, hey, you know what? Um, while we're, we're uh, bickering over, you know, Netflix series and all that, uh, you know, you look at the judiciary totally stacked by the conservatives for like the next century. And, you know, I, I do think and, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a lawyer, too, so I'm guilty of this, too. It's like maybe we should have, uh, you know, created uh, the progressive equivalent of, of the Federalist Society instead of 
clamoring so much about media representation. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's just like one thing I want to say about the reply all controversy though is despite the fact that everyone was kind of looking at it from like a like a diversity lens, right? I actually think the the labor lens is much more interesting here because the timing of all the shit that was that they purported to have done, right, with like not listening to like uh, diverse employees, like you know, not not allowing their employees to unionize, that was happening around the time they were about to sell to Spotify, and they sold uh -huh. for a fuck ton of money that made the you know the top kind of um, uh, showrunners on on Gimlet Media, who runs Reply All, um, super fucking rich. Right, uh -huh. so you can imagine that those guys um, who are like you know pre uh, previously like NPR folks and so on, they they didn't like this is a really important part of their career. They didn't want to get fucked up by like unionization or like some diversity thing that goes wrong, and so they probably squelched it all as a result. But I don't think that angle got talked about nearly as much as like the whole you know diversity fuck up that happened there. So, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. It, it just it just gets like dirtier and dirtier the more you examine mm -hmm. it, huh? Okay, I was gonna. I just wanted to add, like when when it comes to wanting to be like a content creator or um, content curator or somebody who's very visible in, in these like media industries or like in academia, like what seems to be flummoxing everyone is like, who's, who is supposed to be allowed to like represent our narratives, you know, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, because in my world, it would just be opinionated blowhards like the three <laughs> of us. <laughs> who also have the same exact views as us, but you know, nothing is perfect. But, <laughs> but like, so like, what is the right blend of people that, that should write or represent our narratives? I mean, that's, that's the problem, right? Yeah. And I think that's what the uh, Ginny and Georgia, what people got so pissed off about that. Cause uh, you know, people said it's not authentic. I, I don't, think that's like actually true i think it's quite authentic to the people who wrote it because they seem so proud of it i think that might actually be how they talk the real issue is why should we have to watch their authenticity why mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. there's like other everything's authentic to everyone you know why were they past mm -hmm. the mic right why were they yeah. past the mic why were they given the audience in the platform and authenticity is trapped because like they'll argue oh this is this is authentic to me you can't gatekeep whatever mm -hmm. authenticity is it should not be discussed it's an obsession with lived experiences uh you know what everyone has a lived experience okay it's not something special the, uh, it's in the ultimate thing is whether it's any good or should people pay attention to it that's the ultimate question the real the real question is was that seen better representation for like half white half of people than to all the boys because <laughs> i think the i don't know to a lot of people they don't realize that those actors are half well, but that was, that was the whole premise of that conversation right it started with like you're always going to be perceived as more white than me from the half white black girl to the, the boy, half Asian guy. The boy looked full Asian to me. Um, oh, really? I mean he, okay. he looked he looked mixed, but um but at least they talked about it, uh unlike yeah. unlike that other movie. But uh moving on to happier topics, uh Minari, which is one of the most celebrated movies of the year. And Liza, the Golden Globes are tonight, so why don't you give us the rundown on what's going on? Yeah, sure. So um Okay, first of all, I just want to say that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association is such a fraudulent organization. <laughs> that, like, <laughs> Starting harsh, coming out Yeah, so, so who cares about these awards? But so my theory about why the Golden Globes maintain such popularity, because like the Golden Globes, I think it has more weight than it should because um, like, you know, it's, it's one of the few award shows whose ratings don't dip. Like they, they like maintain oh, really? the same popularity that, that they have even before, like everything went streaming. Um, mm -hmm. so I think, I think 
the awards are so dumb. Like when mm-hmm. the awards themselves, like it's so cringe when you see a trailer or like a movie poster, and one of the actors will have like Golden Globe nominee next oh, to yeah. their name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like it's so embarrassing. I mean, if I can interrupt for a second, it's already cut. when they say Academy nominee, you're like, oh, that means you lost. Even though I know it's a big <laughs> honor, so it's like it's not even that, and you didn't even win a Golden Globe. You got nominated for a Golden Globe. It's like that's that's a reach, you know. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, so my theory is that it's it's popular because it's the only show, at least that I know of, that awards both TV and film. Um, it's one of the few award shows that's televised. And then usually when we're not in a pandemic, it's held in an – it's not an auditorium. Everyone's, like, sitting at round tables. So we get to see all the celebrities, like, talking to each other. Mm-hmm. We get to see their reactions when winners are announced or when the hosts make jokes about the uh, Hollywood Foreign Press Association – and then, of course, there's the marketing, because for some people, it's like their way to market their movie before the Oscars. That doesn't mean that I don't care about award shows. Like, I fucking live for the Oscars, and <laughs> I don't care what anyone else thinks about that. Like, how some people care about soccer or, like, basketball, I guess I care about the Oscars. But here's my predictions for tonight's Globes. Um, I think Soul by Pixar will take Best Animated. I think Trent Reznor will take Best Original Song Score. Yeah, Probably baby. for Soul, but he also did Mank. So he's mm-hmm. he's going to be, you know, he's he's got like a two out of five chance to win. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also really like the animated Wolf Walkers. I don't know if you guys saw that. It's on Apple Plus and it's a, it's a Celtic fairy tale, which is 2D and it's hand-drawn and I'm um, it comes from Apple Plus. So if we have a Wolfwalkers moment tonight instead of Soul, it'll be because Apple decided to do a big campaign push for the movie. Um, best supporting actor, I think it's between Daniel Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah or Sasha Baron Cohen for Trial of the Chicago 7. Um, that one is kind of hard for me because I think Sasha Baron Cohen's actually going to be recognized in other categories, like uh, maybe best actor for musical or comedy for Borat 2. You made that prediction like months ago when we saw that movie, but you haven't changed it so far. No, I haven't changed it. No. Okay. Um, there's really, for best supporting actor in um, musical or comedy or drama, I think it's it's between those two. And I, uh, Amanda Seyfried is probably going to take best supporting actress for Mank, uh, which is probably going to be the only Mank win despite all the publicity and hype it was getting. Um, let's see here. I, I'm actually, for for... Best actor in a motion picture drama, which is also a wild card for me. I'm rooting for Riz Ahmed um, for Sound of Metal, but I think that Chadwick Boseman seems to be the favorite for a posthumous award for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's going to be and, a tough uh, one. Yeah, I suspect that a Riz Ahmed win is the only win that people will accept without outrage because I think if Gary Oldman or Anthony Hopkins wins, people the will world like crowd riot. It's not Yeah, good. they will just be all over Twitter screaming in anguish. And um, that narrative is already decided. And it, it sucks because I really think that Shia, I can't pronounce his last name because it's French, so I'm just going to call him Shia the Beef. I think that he deserves <laughs> recognition for his performance in Pieces of a Woman. Um, Best actress in a motion picture drama. I've got Frances McDormand for No Man Land or Vanessa Kirby for Pieces of a Woman. But you know, Chris, I think that Chris Carrie Mulligan might have a shot for Promising Young Woman. Mm. And for uh, best director, it's going to be Chloe Zhao. Chloe Zhao. Chloe Zhao. How do you pronounce it? Zhao, I think. Chloe Zhao. She's going to get best director for No Man Land here um, at the Globes and also at the Oscars. Like she's she's um No Madland is gonna go best picture. It's it's not my favorite of the year, but it's really good. And I won't be upset if it wins. Um 
you know, the only reason I don't want Chloe Zhao to win is because um, her next movie is Marvel's Eternals. Oh, yeah. And I don't want her to talk about that, but I know that <laughs> she probably is contractually obligated to. So I would like a very Marvel-free year. So it would be a, a marvelous year for cinema. Are we getting close to a Marvel-free year? I don't think there's much Marvel like, lined I guess up it, for anything. WandaVision, I don't know. Maybe uh, I know, actually, TV, 2020 though, was very Marvel-free. Okay, well, thanks, Liza, for all those uh, predictions. We'll see. We'll see how you do. We'll uh, we'll do a count uh, in our next episode. Tally. You score I, yourself I, every t- every award show, yeah, Liza. Yeah, I like- am. I am wrong every year. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh no, that's not good news for your picks then. Uh, no. I I I I am I stand by all of my picks because I believe that my picks are the best. But um, unfortunately. Uh, voting bodies don't agree with me. Yeah. You're, you're like the Charles Barkley of, of predictions. Is he always right, though? <laughs> no, he's always wrong. He's he's wrong. No, what I'm saying is, are, are, is he always right as in like, yes, he is correct? Oh, um, I think so. I don't know. It, it's like, whatever he does, it always goes the opposite. So, See, I, I'm always right. It's just that they don't agree with me. Right. And I think, I think it's the case with him, too. Like, uh, he'll pick actually the better team on paper. And and by all logic, they should win, but somehow they lose mm, mm. because he picks them. <laughs> I got into a screaming fight years and years ago because of uh, the Hurt Locker versus Inglorious Bastards. Oh, okay. My well, I, 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 I know which one you picked. Yeah, which one you picked. Like no one talks about Hurt Locker anymore. Yeah. All right. Uh, so with Minari, this uh, same controversy happened with the farewell, in which uh, it's now it's in a foreign language. Uh, category, right? It it couldn't get into, I guess, more general one. So th- there's well, that whole. Well, that's how issue. the Golden Globes works. It's just the foreign yeah. language is can't compete in Best Picture at the Globes. Yeah. Also, and then, who cares? Because it's the Globes. It didn't stop Parasite last year. Yeah, in the Oscars, it can. Right. You can contend for Best Picture because there's no rule for that in the Oscars, right? So it seems to just be kind of. I, I think people need an excuse. To vent their yeah. real life frustrations about not being seen as American because they're you know Asian or black or uh, you know non-white, so then they take this as an issue. But it's like it's the Golden Globes; there's a billion awards. Um, you, you know, he's like, if you want to make a fuss, make a fuss about the Oscars. But the Oscars doesn't have that rule, so there's. Like, forget yeah, it. The about. Golden Globes nominated Emily in Paris for like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, case in point, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I well, would I, say I, that the foreign language category at the Globes probably has the best movies, anyway. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, just embrace the it. The foreign like, language who, issue is only an issue for people who don't watch foreign movies. Right, and they think it's a pejorative. Right. right? It's so, only mm-hmm. an issue for people who don't even watch movies. Like, these are, it's an issue for people who think the Golden Globes are supposed to be a serious event. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, so let's, before we get to talk about Minari then, what we liked and all that, I think there's a debate that we need to settle. Is Stephen Yoon hot or not? Because... Um, you know, growing up, I always saw, you know, People that Magazine. That's a question. I don't understand yeah. why you're asking that. <laughs> no, because I've been gaslit my whole life in that, you know, you know, f- uh, people will release their like 50 most beautiful people list or whatever. Uh-huh. And then uh, there'll just be like some random minority they put in because they put no thought into it at all. <laughs> so I-, I remember seeing like Asian guys there and it, it just seems to be like the only one who-, who had a TV show or movie that year would just get in. So I don't know if, um, you know, Hollywood has deemed Steven Yeun hot just because you know he's just in a lot of stuff, or if he's objectively attractive. Are you saying that you don't think he's hot, and that it's I, like some sort of like um, I don't know, 
like a charity award or something. I, yeah, I yeah, that, that's kind of what I'm saying. I've been like punked so much in my life uh, <laughs> via the media that I don't know. I don't trust my own sense when it comes to like Asian American male celebrities. So, what what do you guys think? I think Stephen. I think he's hot. I don't think that John Cho is though. Yeah, that that's the thing. Like you know, everyone's like, oh yeah, John Cho is so hot. Like, are you just saying no, that because he's like the only Asian guy there? I, don't I mean, think he's he not. Is. He's no Hiroyuki mm-hmm. Sonata. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Um, Philip, what's you your opinion? You have to have long hair. That one. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a separate debate. Um, I think I mean Stephen Yun is his, his breakout role was as Glenn Ree in Walking Dead, right? And there he plays like the one kind of like uh, kind of chipper, optimistic character in a mm-hmm. very very dark world. And not only that, but he also has his you know relationship um, with his counterpart, where he he like kind of comes off as uh, he 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 fills the role as like a like a kind of honest um and like dedicated husband as well as future father though he never ends up having the kid while mm-hmm. he's still alive um spoiler, spoiler alert um so so he i mean what i'm saying is that he, he plays yeah. a, he just plays a very different kind of masculinity on screen mm-hmm. right in that big role that defined him has like a a you know rising star um and and uh important asian american actor so like i think he is hot but he's hot in a way that like kind of like a lot of typical like hot white guy actors are are not in that he he plays like a good guy he doesn't play like necessarily like a straight up badass right right one of those kind of roles right he plays a guy who's like you can identify as being like a good guy who's also very attractive so it's a different kind of hot but i do think he is hot yeah i don't even think he's a different kind of hot i think he's just hot <laughs> yeah like I, if we're I, gonna I, talk I mean, about a different kind of hot then i would put john cho in that category because i'm not attracted to him mm. <laughs> well I, I think steven yeah, definitely if you saw him in real life i think he'd be like head and shoulders above you know the average person on the street just because you know that that's how most actors are you know they they just in real life they're probably like blindingly beautiful but uh, on screen especially when you like compare them in like a movie world where everybody is like a model we kind of had the same conversation about carrie mulligan last week i think yeah uh, you know like if she was your co-worker she'd be like the hottest girl at the office but then in hollywood (laughs) she's you know, she's above average. Yeah, I, I still think that was because of hair and, and style and like wardrobe. But like, that's also part of the thing too. Like when these actors, when you see them on the street, they are now at the point where they can like, you know, afford a stylist and have like great hair all the time. And that makes a big difference versus like mm-hmm. the average dude on the street, right? Yeah. Actually, uh, I think I think Carrie Mulligan is a uh, pretty interesting comparison because I, I think Stephen Yoon, his like hotness has grown over the years because he has proven himself to be a bit of a more unconventional actor. Like his yes. his roles, like for example, like he was a he's a great guy in um The Walking Dead. Yeah, if you watch Burning, he's a total scumbag. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but very, very, very like very sexy scumbag. Very, very unsettling. Like you know, he's like a bad guy, but you don't really know why because you know you don't know that much about him ultimately in the end. And then uh, in something like Sorry to Bother You, he's this kind of like this you know subversive organizer who's 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 like not not like a good guy in the sense he obeys all the rules but he's also fighting for a good cause so i think that has really helped him because he's mm-hmm. he's more interesting and interesting is always hot uh as opposed to just being a cookie cutter look at my abs kind of guy yeah he's sexy because he's passionate in that one versus walking in he's sexy because he's a good guy versus um in burning he's sexy because he's a sociopath right <laughs> yeah all right uh so I, let, let's finally mo- talk about the movie uh, i think we all really enjoyed the movie i um you know I, I watched it you know months ago i remember just you know being very captivated by it i didn't cry in it like so many it seems to be like the the standard asian american uh response to it 
But I was, you know, it's a it's a touching movie without being cloying or you know too too sappy or melodramatic or mm-hmm. any of that. Uh, what did it's you like guys think of the movie? It's a trauma movie done right. Yeah, I, I think that it's the best kind, like the whole immigrant trauma, uh, you know, kind of thing. I, I think it's the most. I I can't envision it being better done than this. Yeah, I think what I liked about it was that it it was done in a way where it avoided some tropes of immigrant movies or immigrant stories. And it also like looked at other aspects of the immigrant story that immigrant stories tend to overlook because they're so focused on like what they think the audience wants to see. And what I mean by that is like the, the one thing I noticed is that there's very little racism in this movie. Like the only, I don't know if I, I miss anything, but like the only bit of racism I recall was like when um, the daughter uh, Anne is at the, the church gathering. And then this little girl like, comes up to her as a white girl and says like a bunch of like racist like ching chong things to her and says like let me know like stop me when i say something korean or in your language right and that was the only thing and there is nothing from like you know any of the other white characters of which there are plenty in this movie right it wasn't about their kind of struggle against racism necessarily um you know it was just about their struggle as people trying to like make a living in this rural part of america so that you don't see a lot usually at these movies especially if it's asian american it's all about the fucking racism Right, and you just spend the entire time. And yeah, the plot which is like kind of unrealistic that. because whenever you talk to your like our parents about when they first got here, it's like I don't think my parents have ever mentioned racism once. Yeah, yeah my my parents mentioned more trying to make a fucking living, which is what right. this movie is about. Right, <laughs> they talk more about stuff like you know, like my dad didn't have his driver's license when he got here, so it's like he's just talking yeah. about like navigating the bus mm-hmm. <laughs> or the bus routes. Well, I think there's a reason, but it's all implied. Like, for instance, like, why are they stuck working this crappy job as, uh, you know, sorting out? He wasn't. They weren't stuck, Uh, though. He chose that. But it's like, but when they arrived, why was this the only job that was available to them? We don't really know about their background. Maybe they were farmers and, and this was the only thing. But it seemed like this like it was either be like a, a chicken sex sorter for the rest of his life or, uh, you know, purchase this kind of weird piece of land that nobody really seemed to want and and that was the only thing that was available to him so it was all implied but yeah it wasn't made explicit because usually you know our parents didn't explicitly talk to us about it well mine kind of did but um, you know (laughs) that a lot of people don't because they they bottle it up and even to themselves you know the the husband and wife you know they don't really talk about it i actually Um, don't even care how realistic it was that like very little racism was depicted i just care about the fact that they didn't like really try bothering to address that obvious thing that people might expect especially a white audience might expect mm-hmm. right and just went and did their story like i yeah. really respected that part of of the yeah, story same. writing and direction right yeah. or, um, or else you end up like Ginny and georgia you know that's what happens yeah exactly you go too hard <laughs> on the on the bullshit right um and then the other side of it is like the the other plots that the other kind of threads and themes that were were kind of uh explored especially the theme around you know stephen yoon's character jacob and his his like ordeal as a as a father who also wants to be independent right? What's it like trying to raise your kids in this very difficult situation, you know, maintain your relationship with your wife and so on, while also trying to follow the path that you want to follow, right? There's a lot of really beautiful short lines he delivers where he's like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm so happy when I, I love working outside, you know, I like, you know, he's very passionate about this whole farming thing, which sounds maybe crazy to us, right? Um, And he really tries to put his heart into it. And you get to see that, Um, that, that part, like that aspect of it, I think, was a nice thing to see alongside just the generic immigrant story piece as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there like a whole like field of dreams aspect to it where he had his big dream of owning, uh, you know, his farm, which I, I think 
was a good way to address um like the balancing of say your individual dreams as as like a, a father or mother as an immigrant mm-hmm. versus having to sacrifice that for your family because with jacob he had his own personal ambitions uh, uh not just for himself but also for his family of you know living off the land and and having having a you know not just being beholden to his boss at the, the chicken sex order mm-hmm. factory or whatever yet uh he often does things that actually jeopardizes his relationship with his family for the sake of that goal including to the point where his his uh, wife was ready to leave him at the end and then only when uh his dreams literally like goes up in smoke uh do, are they able to bond back together because yeah. he, he was like chasing this white whale too much and um but you don't really know what happens after the movie because you see them you know he's finding like a new well to dig and maybe he gets his dream after all but he's not so willing to throw away his family for the sake of his family it's like it's like, it's like his priorities got fucked up yeah it's a very full depiction of an asian man right that you don't mm-hmm. see and you think about you really don't see that in movies or tv that are you know an asian America, dad right? especially asian yeah. dad yeah 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 um, and it, it definitely doesn't jive with the stories of like flat robotic Asian dads who are just punitive and punish you, right? Like you do see some aspects of that because he, you know, he, he, I love whenever he tells David, a little boy who's got the, the heart murmur, like, you know, stop running, David, or don't run, David, right? Like, I, I, I feel like my dad has had that tone with me before too. But at the same time, you also see when he's extremely loving and he like tells his, you know, his son, like, you know, Koreans, we, we use our heads, right, to solve problems, right? When they're trying to figure out where the water is and so on. So you, you, it's a very full depiction of what an Asian immigrant father would be, which, again, it's just not depicted in anywhere, really. Mm-hmm. What were you guys, uh, is like some of your favorite parts of the movie that immediately come to mind? Or like favorite characters or... Oh, the grandmother. Like oh, yeah. Everyone loves the grandma. <laughs> she was great. Yeah. She a very famous actress in, in uh, Korea. I think so. Um, I'm not... 100% sure but I, I I'm betting she is uh, because she's so good and she must she must be you know quite a quite a star yeah you know my biggest surprise walking into the movie was that I, I thought that Steven was going to be the main character but it's actually mm-hmm. the little boy mm-hmm. yeah it's um it's hard to tell who the main character is I actually would think it's Steven Yoon because even though well, he's just the biggest name he's the biggest name but it's like in terms of a character who who do we see the most change from who who are we most invested in i think it's told kind of through the eyes of the little boy but also we don't get his subjectivity too much um because oh, for one thing there's no like voiceover uh you know when he's older telling us what he thinks but i think that's that was what was nice about the movie it spread out the the character so that you got to know everyone uh a fair bit no one person was yeah. dominating something that i've been thinking about ever since this movie was announced is that um You know, with every single movie like this, you know, specifically like an immigrant story or um, uh, whatever, there's so much talk about the identity of the filmmaker, you know, like every other woman, Asian woman director always has so much written about her. And there's so much like there's all this hoopla made about who she is and her identity. And there's like, I, I, I never hear anything about the director. About him. Oh, Lee Isaac Chung? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I never hear anything about him. I don't hear, like, I, I don't know. I guess I, for some reason, why is his identity left out? But, like, everyone else's identity is included. Like, even even a movie that's got nothing to do with Asian people, like Nomadland, like Chloe mm-hmm. Zhao. Like, she's, she's so talked about. 
or like the whole oh, thing. Yeah, like remember yeah. the farewell. There was so much about Lulu Wang, just as much, much, just as much about the director as there was about the movie itself. And here it's like we're focusing on the movie, which I prefer. But I'm just wondering why he's so. Why is it so different? Well, I guess the whole like social justice machine, you don't get any bonus points for, I think, pushing like an Asian man's identity. Because if you push like an Asian woman, you but can at men least... men of color, though, like they do get pushed. So what? what is he, what is he just a white guy? Is he just like, are, are, is an Asian man director basically the same as like a white guy director? I mean, I think that it bears out if you look at, say, how Asians are treated in, you know, college admissions. Yeah, I think that is kind of the truth. Like if you're an Asian guy, you're, you're like barely considered more diverse than a than a white guy you're basically a deformed white guy you're like a white guy without any of the supposed benefits or advantages of whiteness <laughs> which really is just yeah but we, you know, we focus terrible. we focus on like the identity of steven yeah that's that's true too but not the director so yeah. what's the difference between steven and the director you know that that is a good question because uh, the movie is quite autobiographical i think the lee mm-hmm. isaac chung the director is grew up in arkansas i think his parents were like kind of like farmers and all that. He is directing the remake of Your Name, the the Makoto Shinkai anime movie that was a huge hit in like 2017. I don't know. I don't like it. I think he's being set up to fail. Um, I, I don't think this movie... Look, I'm not against remakes. Uh, they recently announced Train to Busan as a remake, and I'm like, uh, yeah. I'm all for it if you make it in the proper American context. But if you just keep it mostly the same, uh, then it's like, why remake it? Uh, I want there to be a good reason for the remake because, hell... You know what? A good percentage of movies are basically remakes of some kind, and they're yeah, necessary because they they change certain key elements to fit the you know the culture or the time period, and they're all unique in their own special way. But if you just do like a a palette swap, like a racial palette swap, or even worse, you keep a few Asians in, but but whatever. That's like, <laughs> why did you even do it in the first place? Um, <laughs> so with this your name thing, I don't know. I mean, I want better for for Lee Isaac, you know. Interestingly, his first, I think, movie was set in Rwanda. So yeah, yeah. he has he has a very interesting like work uh, work history. Oh, something we kind of forgot to mention. We we probably should briefly mention the the Stephen Yoon photo shoot that briefly caused the controversy, at least on my Twitter feed. They thought they made him look ugly. I thought he looked pretty good. He looked. I like, thought that this was what you were getting at when you were asking. Oh, that whether he's hot or not. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. What I thought too. But I I think it's related in that people are kind of. On insecure in that you know they think Stephen Yeun is kind of being punked by the establishment. Um, but I thought <laughs> are, the are these like, are these like Asian guys who are like, how dare they represent us like this? In like a yeah, I mean, you see, what do they suit. want? Like underwear photos with like they want, no, 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 they, they, they want the Sasha Baron Cohen because Sasha Baron Cohen and Riz Ahmed he had shoots too. Yeah, I really? thought he looked ridiculous. He, he's like Baron suits Cohen, too tight. It's his, he's too big for the car he's sitting on. Yeah, no, he's, yeah, his suit's too tight. Uh, the car's like too like it's weirdly proportioned, so he looks like he's sitting on a toy car. You know, like those little. It's uh, the perspective, you know, yeah. Yeah, you know those like uh, uh, Fisher Price trucks that little <laughs> yeah, yeah, kids yeah, yeah. drive. Those plastic with, yeah. cars. Yeah, that's what it looks like. And I thought Stephen looked kind of like too cool for school, which I think is his thing i think that's what he should stick to and not not try to be uh, I, the, the suit up guy which i is thought he looked lame. terrible but i thought that was the point was that he was playing into because he looked distinctly more terrible than riz ahmed and sasha baron cohen i thought he was playing into this like this photographer's whole style which is to make did he really look that bad place. yeah he had like bag under his bags under his eyes in one of the uh one of the shots right um i also felt like he looked really kind of rough in some of his interviews um and was kind of a little bit like 
came off as super tired in some of his interviews because he did the whole circuit right for Minari. Um, on the Stephen Colbert show, he looked super tired and, and was felt like he was just kind of reading lines. But I didn't know if that was because he was just exhausted from the, the tiring kind of media cycle you need to do prior to your movie release, or if it was because he's like a he's a dad, right? So he's he's got dad shit to do too. But um, I don't know I I saw that in the in the photo shoot too, and I I thought he just played into it because he's he's a he's a funny dude, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's the aspect of Stephen Yeun people don't talk about is that he was in st- uh in not, I don't know if stand up but like he was uh, in improv comedy yeah improv right? uh, yeah yeah so Chicago, he can he can take like... himself a little bit less seriously and do this shoot and like uh, he probably doesn't give a shit what people are thinking online right so yeah all right now that we discussed the movie itself I want to get to this larger topic of you know as much as I like this movie I know we kind of talked about like as soon as we saw it, we were considering doing a pod and I could not really find myself anything to latch on to to talk about because everyone's saying it was a beautiful movie they all cried uh our friend jess uh talked about how there was like a screener event and then after it sandra oh was the moderator and she was interviewing the cast and all the korean american actors they started crying and talking about how this was like uh you know their way of bridging their gap with their parents and all that meanwhile (laughs) the korean korean actors were just like well this is this was just like a movie for us in, in you know it's a very good movie but it, they didn't quite understand why the korean americans were crying <laughs> yeah. and as much as i appreciate uh you know reconciling with with your uh, parents as a second gen and all of that i am a little wary that this is all we can do as asian americans and i look at the type of cinema and culture coming out of asia like if you look at korean movies and all the most uh, well-known and beloved korean movies like the the like the vengeance trilogy by Park Chan-wook or um all sorts of other uh movies from Parasite to um you know there's like so many um and they're all like bloody violent transgressive all that yeah so they're good yeah so they're good and and they're celebrated for that people are like oh you know you know it's that Han these movies are so honey I I love that (laughs) Han but then you look at Korean American movies and they're like Minari or um, or look at other Asian American movies. They're all about, you know, like making us feel good about being Asian or crying about our parents' experience. All legit things. But it's like, why are we only allowed to do this? And I think the reality is we love Asian anger. We love Asian chaos because, hey, it's over there. But Asian American anger is very dangerous. People are actually really afraid of that. And you can see that right now with all the waves of Asian American attacks. Most Asian Americans, even uh, especially if you're like kind of like a celebrity, all you can really say is, we're heartbroken, you know, we're, this why don't they love right us? Now. Yeah, this must stop right now. Or, or you get kind of mad, but it's like, okay, but, but we, you know, we can't like blame the anybody only time, else. Well, no, 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 the maybe, only time they can show any kind of anger is when they blame white supremacy. Right. Then white, all the right, anger right. is allowed to come out. Yeah. yeah. Well, like before you're only allowed to get angry at other Asians. Now it's kind mm-hmm. of, I guess, progressed. You can blame white supremacy, not really white people as individuals, because then, you know, you got to give up people in your own lives uh but white supremacy has this uh nebulous floating fortress of evil that everybody that blames for everything solved. that cannot be solved can never be defeated but you can project all your disappointments and anger at um yeah so i, I want to talk about that because i do want to see more transgressive asian american stuff but i think there's a deep deep fear of that Who's who's fearing that? Is that is it the gatekeepers who like run the studios who allow these things to happen, or is it the actual like Asian American writers, directors, actors, actresses both. themselves who produce it? Both, like no, I think just... it's both. I think it's the writers. I think it's the gatekeepers, and I also think it's the audiences. Yeah, 
Well, the thing is, if you are like an Asian American, um, you know, writer or filmmaker or whatever, and you have these ambitions, it'll be stamped out of you pretty quickly. If you, I think, if you have dreams of making it uh, at any level, and I think society as a general is very fearful of Asian American anger because, for one thing, it is justified, uh-huh. and if it is expressed, it fucks up a lot of established uh, kind of like hierarchies, whether. It's, you know, who gets priority uh, among liberal circles in terms of sympathy and all that. Um, and, you know, Asian Americans are, th- the function we play in American society is is like it, like the good child. We're, we're the child that turned out well in terms of minorities with like, you know, black people and, and Latinos for, for less, uh, to a lesser extent. We're They're supposed like to be that- everybody's sidekick. Right. With those other minorities, they're like the kids that, that whom the parents failed. And the parents are always having to make up for that. But oh, the parents being like white people. and But the parents, in order to um, rebalance their, I guess, conscience, you get to look at Asian Americans like, oh, you know, with them, we succeeded. You know, it, it proves how, how our methods can work. You know, we're not total fuck ups. And if Asian Americans get angry, it fucks that up. So we are not allowed to get angry, uh, even though... Asians from Asia, they love it when we get angry. But like, but who's who's not allowing us to get angry? Because honestly, every time an Asian person gets angry, it's other Asians that tell them to shut up. Well, exactly. I don't see white people telling Asian people to shut up. Well, I think it. it, it It's always Asian people telling them. Yeah, and then like, where did those Asians learn it? It was from their like non-Asian peers and superiors. Like, you know, this is your place. Uh, your job is to is to police. Asian American anger and make sure it doesn't get out of hand because uh, if it does, it's going to cause headaches for everybody. So where did they learn it though? Uh, you you mean those like non Asian people? Uh, yeah, where, where did where did the Asians who are stamping out all the Asian anger where did they learn that from? Uh, I don't know, like their workplaces, their schools, um, you know, just culture around us, where you know they're constantly telling us that Asian Americans should ultimately be grateful for even being allowed here. And we we really don't have that much to complain about. Because I think it comes from both ends. It's like it's coming from white supremacy and like, you know, very white liberal uh, ideas about us. But I think it also comes from the out of control SJW crowd. Well, sure. Yeah. And, and they're In like fact, kinda... I see more of it coming from the out of control SJW crowd. Yeah, and and they're 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 like in coats together. They're they're not like opposing identities. They they work uh, very well together. And you're saying this attitude is preventing us from having like a better luck to sorry better luck tomorrow two kind of movie come yeah, out. Yeah, I, th- I think it's preventing us from having a much more vibrant culture. Um, I mean, uh, there's this essay uh, by Laura Kipnis that I really liked. It's called Transgression and Allergy. I won't go too deep to it into this episode. I think it warrants its own look. But ultimately, her the point of this essay is that she, I mean, right now she's a well-known like feminist scholar and thinker. But you know, she grew up. Uh, wanting to be an artist she went to art school and all that and she grew up revering the transgressive people like Vito Akanchi and all these people but she's noting how now uh, whereas before all the people who used to get offended and moralized and and uh, with respect to art were right-wing conservatives someone like Rudy Giuliani getting pissed off about pissed Jesus for example but now <laughs> it's flipped where it's actually the liberals and progressives who are always being offended and it's the conservatives and the alt-right who are the ones pushing boundaries and breaking taboos. Absolutely agree. Yeah, and and she, I think, is very conflicted about this because on one hand, like being transgressive has 
usually been uh, the property of men, and they often inflicted upon women. You know, wh mm -hmm. whether it was as art subjects or you know even as like you know when they were like raping or or groping them or whatever. Um, so as as like a feminist, you're like, okay, maybe we shouldn't revere transgressiveness so much. Uh, and and she notes how now we're in like the trauma age. Everything is trauma, trauma, trauma. That's the source of all our cultural output. Um, and it seems to be more favorable to women. So she is sympathetic to that, but also as you know, as an artist, she did does still look up to you know the people who are af not afraid to to break windows, metaphorically speaking. So I, I bring that up because I think. Asian American culture has so much always been steeped in trauma. I don't even know if we've ever had a transgressive period. And I think we need that because, I mean, I, I think trauma has its merits. Although uh, Kitness has this very interesting line where she says that um, trauma is a bigger tent than talent or inspiration, which seems to be quite a diss at, at the whole like <laughs> trauma-centered artistic movement saying that, it, you know, like transgressiveness takes inspiration and talent which is rarer and harder to do rather than trauma which you know pretty much almost anyone can do but yeah trauma could be as little as like i missed going to prom senior year you know something yeah, as dumb as that yeah so yeah so well, my my thesis is asian american culture needs to be far more transgressive i don't think we've ever been had one because we've never been allowed one but if you're an artist you should be pushing boundaries and as much as i love you know minari or like the farewell even though liza i know you hate that movie i enjoyed these movies but you know i'm getting kind of tired yeah, i enjoy of them i don't want to see any more of them though i agree right. with you or like it, it's it's the immigrant story or or the weepy uh, thing or or the self-esteem booster you know let, let's be proud of being asian mm -hmm. yeah seriously i don't need a self-esteem booster I, i'm like i'm fine being asian you know you don't need, you don't need to convince me that it's great to be asian i already know that yeah, and it goes back to our Generation Wuss uh, episode. You know, I we we all agree with Brad Easton Ellis. Things that are art that's moralizing and all about making yourself feel better usually is terrible, or at least not as good as it can be. Even if it's good, it's kind of like not that good. <laughs> so, so your proposal from like the perspective of making art and content, uh, and Asian Americans becoming more transgressive is like fewer minorities, more. Better luck tomorrow's, right? I want to say better luck tomorrow's. I mean, I, th I think of a few examples in like Asian American culture generally. And, uh, you know, some of these are more extreme than others. I think better luck tomorrow is, is pretty extreme, which kind of sounds sad to say because it's not even that extreme if you think about it. Uh, I think private citizens, which you, Philip, and I have talked about, I think that approaches yeah. it. I think free food for millionaires, uh, especially yeah, isn't for that adaptation coming out pretty soon. Yes, I'm, I'm very excited and a bit wary I, I hope they don't water it down uh but you know it, even especially given its context in which it's supposed to be this literary like uh hoity-toity type of novel um i thought it was quite transgressive for uh for within its like genre so i want to see more of that and i want, I want to see you know, like we can theorize, like what would a, what would like an Asian American parasite look like? It is a question I constantly ask myself. You guys wanna, you guys wanna like play a little game, try to, you know, suss it out, see what it might, what it should look like. If we it's, are like, it's gonna, it's gonna be, it's gonna have to revolve around the whole like Ivy League, yeah, uh, rat yeah. race. I think it has to yeah. have something to do with that part because that's so. I mean, for Can Asian Canadians, I find it's not as big a deal. For for Asian Americans, I've learned it's such a big fucking like you know, watershed moment for every kid, right, who grows up. So it has, it has to do with that. I don't know how, but... Yeah, so okay, let, let's envision the, the poor family first, 
Yeah. Uh, the Song Kang-ho's family from uh, from Parasite. What what would they be in the if it were an Asian American like remake? They'd be of like Parasite. Cambodian or something. Be like probably Cambodian. Yeah, they'd be Southeast um, Asian. They would definitely would not mm-hmm. be Korean. Right? Southeast Asian. Um, obviously, probably like less English fluent. Definitely the parents. The parents would not be able to speak without like a thick accent and you know broken English things like that. Right. Or not the rich all. family is basically Christy Teigen and, uh, and uh, like John Legend. <laughs> That's the rich family. Yeah, yeah. I think definitely, like literally them. D- uh, definitely Ivy League educated. Um, or famous. Pro- famous. Uh, let's not let's not get that extreme. I, okay, I think cause, fine. Because even fine. in Parasite, they weren't like living under you know like uh, K-pop stars or something. So you know, within the context of everyday life, what is the Asian American elite? Then definitely the mom would be modeled completely after Chrissy Teigen. Uh, sure. Um, but l- let's keep them like full Asian. Just Chriselle to... Lim then? Yeah, maybe. I-, I think definitely either the man or the woman has to have like a white partner, I think, in the in Asian American. Or a non or just a non-Asian partner, definitely. Right. Or maybe nowadays it, it's it's gonna be like a like a you know, like a Barack Obama or Michelle Obama. Yeah. That's like that's like that's like Kristen Teigen and John Legends get, right? Because she's half Asian technically, right? Thai. And uh he's he's black and rich. I actually didn't know that she was only half. I thought she was full Thai. Oh yeah. Oh okay, uh, really? okay that makes oh. sense. But yeah, I, I think I think they would code too much as black. It would be a bit confusing. Hey, that'd be an interesting movie. No, where the but that would be family... that would be exactly what we're getting at, right? Confusing. <laughs> Mm-hmm. because yeah. it's like we already it's like we yeah, blame and I, and too I, much on whites we blame too much on white supremacy yeah and i think they would work in some kind of like cultural industry i think i don't think they would be oh, yeah. doctors i think that's no I th- yeah i think that's a little they, the mom would be like an influencer type <laughs> <laughs> the dad would be like I don't know what the dad would be like. Maybe he'd be like a director or something or like a writer, someone oh, yeah, very producer yeah. successful. Or, or, like, or like a cool tech guy. Not like not like a Microsoft engineer. Like a startup engineer. type? Yeah, yeah a startup, like, like a startup cool CEO, startup. The kind successful. of guy who who hangs out with like Elon Musk or something like that. Um, not like an irrelevant nerd coder type. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that would really bother a lot of Asian Americans because they would see themselves too much in the upper class family. And uh, Eliza, oh yeah, that, up, that would fucking disturb people for sure. Yeah, Eliza, you brought up Chrissy Teigen. She became kind of infamous because she had that tweet where like, "Oh my god, I love Parasite. I relate to it so much." <laughs> then she has that that picture of her like forcing her mate to dress up like a like a plague doctor and for do Halloween. Her nails. Oh and my do god! Her nails. And then she boasts about how I think every few days she buys a new set of AirPods because she always loses them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I, I think it's very comfortable for Americans to watch a movie like Parasite because they don't really feel like they're the overclass, which is another reason why it's much easier to allow violent, subversive, transgressive. Well, what Asian about if culture. somebody made like a very sympathetic uh, biopic about like Andy No? <laughs> oh, wait, <laughs> wouldn't that confuse people too? <laughs> I think that guy had like a best-selling book come out recently, right? Uh, am I, am I, did he? Am I wrong about that? Yeah. Yeah, he, I think he, he screws up a lot of people's uh, mentality, especially Asian Americans. Yeah. yeah, he's gay and Vietnamese. Like, I know he's oh, gay. Okay. Oh yeah, he's gay. Yeah, I, I thought that was pretty well known. It's like, oh, I, I know it. Another like toxic Asian guy, but like uh, East East Asian guy. Uh, oh shit, he's Vietnamese. Well, uh, I guess they're the most East Asian of the Southeast Asian. Oh shit, he's gay. Oh fuck, you know. Oh <laughs> uh, so. Did Did you guys see that thing that last year? I think during the BLM protests where. 
some like white liberal dude mistaken some random Vietnamese guy for Andrew, Andrew, uh, Andy No. Do you see that clip? No, I didn't. Okay, I'll share it with you. It's oh, pretty funny. Man. It was pretty okay. embarrassing. That's all I'm saying. I mean, I, I, I would, Andy No is like really pushing it. But even if you did like a, a very, um, like a Lee Fong type of guy, even that would mm-hmm. confuse people. Yeah. Um, you know, and he's he's leftist. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people will uh, say otherwise, but they're also, you know, trying to basically say the only type of leftist is their kind of leftist, mm-hmm. uh, even if they're well, just... Well, it's because they can't fathom that anyone... So, like, liberals, especially, like, liberal... Yeah, like social liberals, yeah. Right, they, they, they can't fathom that anyone is to the left of them. Like, they think that they are the radical left. Yeah, so yeah. So anyone that's actually to the left of them, they just think are insane... Or they think are um, just right wingers, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think they're too used to being the the most radical people in the room, which isn't saying much because you know <laughs> if, if you imagine the co- kind of company they keep, so when they get outflanked, it really really hurts them. Which is why they still haven't forgiven Bernie, because I think he all he was the big uh, you know upstager uh, mm-hmm. on their left. Yeah, and all the bros. Yeah. Yeah, which is why they're still heartbroken over a near attendant i saw some of the stupidest like like lingering elements of 2016 continue with that um i saw even people trotting out the oh i think i think there's a tweet that said bernie was not consulted uh when near attendant was nominated to the office of uh budget management or whatever that office is called and people were like why should we consult someone who doesn't even call himself a democrat like oh not this oh one my again. god um <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, to conclude this portion of, of the pod, I just I just want to see more out of the box kind of Asian American stuff uh, as well done as Minari is, and he, it deserves all the accolades because it is a well done movie. What if they did like Minari, but it was like Asian hillbilly allergy, <laughs> <laughs> or like, like not the family is not honorable in any way. <laughs> Yeah, what what if they yeah went on like a murder rampage uh, or something <laughs> That'd be like dope. that? I'd like to see that. A crime family, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, any any other stuff you you guys want to talk about? I didn't I didn't even know it was the Golden Globes tonight. I'm kind of I'm going I'm going to watch it tonight. What's I didn't there? even know that we still had cable TV until my dad put on the Super Bowl a few weeks ago. So Wait, does like, that mean you were paying for cable but nobody was using it? I my dad was. <laughs> okay, so your dad was using. Okay, at least somebody was. You're not, not just giving you free know. money to the cable companies. Yeah. <laughs> we have more than one television. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh. All right. So I think that wraps up this episode. So thank you everyone for listening, and we hope you'll enjoy. Uh. Join us next week. All right. Bye. Bye everyone. Bye.